everyone. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. Last week, we summed up Hebrews chapter 1 with three simple words. Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's even better than angels. And if those things are true, it's not a stretch to suggest that Jesus is better than anything else we may be tempted to worship, pursue, or rely upon. That means he's better than our good works. He's better than worldly success. He's better than temporary pleasure. And he's better than any other so-called God you can think of. Jesus is better than anything and everything we can imagine. Nothing compares to him. Now, what is it that makes Jesus so much better than the angels? We saw that in chapter 1, verse 3. We read there that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is eternal and uncreated. Angels were made. Jesus is God's son. Angels are God's servants. Jesus sits on God's throne. The angels worship around it. And Jesus is humanity's savior. Angels are our helpers. Jesus is better than anything and everything we can imagine, and nothing can compare to him. Not even angels, because he is God. But as we move ahead into chapter 2, we get another reason why Jesus is so great. It turns out that he's not only God. Jesus is also man. Jesus was born. He lived. He suffered. He died. And those are all very human things to do, aren't they? Jesus' humanity just like his divinity, is an irreplaceable part of what makes him so great. And in fact, if Jesus wasn't human, if he hadn't done those things we just listed, then sinners like us would have no hope. Because he's done those things, sinners like us can be redeemed. And knowing that Jesus has done those things... Sinners like us must respond to him with faith and obedience. So open up to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. We'll come back to verses 1 through 4, but we will begin in verse 5. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. I pray that this basic idea that you are so much better than anyone and anything else we can imagine wouldn't just be something that we say, wouldn't just be something that we believe, wouldn't be just a proposition that we hold in our heads. But Lord, I pray that you would really let this truth sink into our hearts, sink into our bones. I pray that our words, our affections, 
our actions would reflect this belief that you really, truly are better than anything we can imagine. Lord, help us grasp even just the slightest taste of your glory and your goodness and your majesty and your power. And Lord, help us respond rightly, as we'll talk about this morning. Thank you for the people who are here in this place. I pray that what we say and do here would be honoring to you and good for us. I pray that you would grow us in our love for you, grow us in our love for your word, grow us in our love for your church, and grow us in our love for each other. And I pray that the words of this sermon or the songs that we sing or the prayers prayers that we pray this morning would all just be one small building block in growing us in all of these things. And Lord, do it for your glory. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It sure sounds like the author is picking up right where he left off in chapter 1. He's talking about angels again. He quotes the Psalms again. This all sounds familiar if you were here last week. But the point that the author makes here is a bit different. For a time, Jesus appeared to be lower than the angels. After all, at least in the eyes of the world, there's nothing impressive about death on a cross. But Jesus did not stay that way forever. And one day we will truly see just how great he really is. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. So while we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus right now, sin, death, and Satan still cause a lot of havoc in our world. One day we will see everything in subjection to Christ. As surely as he died, rose, and ascended, one day Jesus will return. His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, and we will see just how much greater than the angels he really is with our own eyes. Many preachers and theologians have compared the time that we live in right now, the time after Jesus' ascension, but before Jesus' return, to that little window of time between D-Day and V-Day during World War II. D-Day occurred on June 6, 1944. And when the beaches of Normandy were stormed, World War II was effectively won. 
But the celebration didn't really happen until May 8th, 1945, on V-Day. There was an 11-month window when the war was won, but the celebration wasn't really seen quite yet. We live in that same sort of window. Jesus has won the war. The outcome is decided. But we don't quite see all the effects yet because we're still waiting for Jesus to return. We're still waiting for the time when all that we see is in subjection to him as he deserves. Now, what did Jesus do to be given this honor? This power, this glory, this promise that one day he will rule and reign over all. Our passage already told us. He became lower than the angels. He tasted death for everyone. And as we said earlier, dying is a very human thing to do. So what makes Jesus so great? Well, his divinity. Covered that last week. And this week we focus on his humanity. He isn't just fully God. He's fully human. And we see Jesus' humanity nowhere clearer than when he experienced the suffering of death. And you know, ironically, it's the cross. This moment of humiliation. When Jesus looks lower than the angels, that cross also becomes the time of his glory. But now we move ahead to verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So not only does Jesus' humanity mean that he could taste death for everyone, it also means that he can relate to everyone, including us. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus is utterly different than us. He's God, we're not. He's sinless, we're sinners. And Jesus is God's son in a way that none of us ever can or ever will be. But make no mistake. Because of Jesus, we too can be sons and daughters of God by faith. And that is so true that the author of Hebrews says something many theologians might be a little uncomfortable with. He calls us Jesus's brothers. We are Jesus's siblings in a way because God's son became part of the human family. Humans can become part of God's family. In the words of C.S. Lewis, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. 
So what makes Jesus so great? His divinity and his humanity. He isn't just fully God. He's fully man. And even after all our sin, rebellion, failure, and brokenness, he is not ashamed to call us, to call me, to call you his siblings. Maybe you've experienced the devastation, the heartbreak, the shame of being disowned by a friend or a family member. You wake up one day and all of a sudden this person you value, you respect, you admire, you care about wants nothing to do with you. And you don't know why. Or maybe even worse, you do know why. And you deserved it. Because you really did do something wrong. God has not disowned sinful people like us. Rather, he has acted to reconcile us to him through Jesus Christ. Other people might disown you, but Jesus will not. Let's continue in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." We've talked about that word propitiation before. Your translation may say something different. It may say something like atoning sacrifice, which is a great translation. A propitiation is a technical term for a sacrifice that takes away wrath. Or maybe even a sacrifice that sends away guilt or sin. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus tasted death for us. He calls us his siblings by faith. But he also sets us free from sin and death. The author of Hebrews says that the devil holds the power of death. And you might correctly detect an allusion back to the Garden of Eden in those words. While death was God's judgment upon sinful humanity, there's a sense in which death belongs to Satan. After all, he's the one who opened the door to it when he deceived Adam and Eve. But ironically, brilliantly and beautifully, Jesus has taken Satan's own weapon, death, and he has used it against him. Jesus actually did what we see requested in the Psalms. Sometimes when they seek God's justice or God's deliverance, the psalmist would say something like, May my enemies fall into the traps that they laid for others. May they fall into the pit that they dug 
Well, that's what's happened to the devil. He has fallen into the pit that he dug. Because the one who has the power of human death has been defeated by a human's death. That human being Jesus. So in his humanity, Jesus defeated our enemy. He took our penalty. He freed us from fear and slavery. And he can even sympathize with our weaknesses. So what is it that makes Jesus so great? It's his divinity and his humanity. He tasted death for everyone. He calls believers his siblings and he has set us free from slavery. Do you think any of the prophets could have done that? No. What about the angels? No. Only Jesus could do those things. And that's what makes him so much better than anything and everything else we can think of. You know, all this talk of Jesus' divinity and humanity matters. So much so that it was the biggest source of debate within the first several hundred years of the church. Christians rightly determined that this stuff really matters theologically. Christians like Gregory of Nazianzus wrote, Whatever is not assumed cannot be redeemed. That's his way of saying that if Jesus didn't become a man, he could not redeem men. We saw that in Hebrews 2. Another man named Leo the Great adds that we could not overcome the author of sin and death unless Jesus had taken our nature, a.k.a. our humanity, and made it his own. Thomas Aquinas wrote that to restore man who had been laid low by sin to the heights of the divine glory, what we were originally made for, the word of the eternal father, though containing all things within his immensity, willed to become small. Remember what Hebrews 2 said? Lower than the angels for a little while. This he did not by putting aside his greatness. He never ceased to be God. But by taking to himself our littleness. These great thinkers of Christian history are all saying the same thing as the author of Hebrews. Jesus' humanity is an essential part of what makes him so great. But this stuff doesn't just matter theologically. It's not just about doctrinal statements or statements of faith. This stuff matters practically. If you've been set free from the fear of death, that means that you get to really and truly live. Not for yourself, but for the Lord. And if Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, because he really did become human, then we don't have to feel so helpless, so hopeless, and so alone when we're tempted. On top of that, the point of verse 18, just for the record, 
is not only that misery loves company. That's often the way we quote Hebrews 2.18. The point is that thanks to Jesus, the one who didn't give in to temptation the way we so often do, our failures do not have the final say. They do not have to doom us. You know, I feel like I'm forgetting something. I've only been preaching for like 21 minutes, and I usually preach for 30. I feel like I'm forgetting something. So let me retrace my steps for a second. What makes Jesus so great? His divinity and his humanity. We've covered that. We've covered the numerous implications for us that it matters theologically and it matters practically. But I feel like I'm forgetting something, and I don't know what it is. Verses 1 through 4. We said we would come back to verses 1 through 4, and that's what we're going to do. But I wanted you to notice where these verses are located. This passage is right smack in the middle of all this talk about Jesus being fully God in chapter 1 and fully man in chapter 2. It's right in the middle of all this talk of Angels and psalms and Jesus being so great and Jesus being so much better than everything else. Why are these verses right in between all of it? Well, these four verses tell us how to rightly respond to Jesus and all his greatness. So back to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Jesus's greatness. Everything we've talked about so far, his divinity, his humanity, and the sheer fact that he's so much better than anything and everything else demands the right response from people like us. Pretend for a moment that someone asks you to watch their dog. And we'll just hypothetically call the dog Monkey. (laughs) This person really cares about their dog, perhaps to an unhealthy degree. And they would be terribly upset if something bad were to happen to it. So that means that you take their instructions extremely seriously. You chew Monkey's food for him in advance. Like a mother bird. You only give him water sourced from a melted Arctic glacier. You take a magnifying glass to every square inch of that dog's body to check for fleas and ticks. And you know that if you don't take this seriously, you will be in huge trouble. But now imagine... That the same person asks you to watch their child. And if you think they love their dog, multiply that love by a thousand. 
They'd be upset if something happened to their dog on your watch. But if something happened to their kid, they would be devastated. What's the point? The child is greater than the dog. So if you would go to such absurd lengths to care for the dog, how much more so will you care for the child? If the consequences of hurting the dog would be severe, how much more certain would the consequences be if you hurt the kid? Jesus is so much greater than the angels. And if the consequences for disobeying the angels, the one who, according to Deuteronomy 33 and Acts 7 and Galatians 3, were involved in giving God's law to Moses in the Old Testament, if the consequences for disobeying them were certain, how much more certain are the consequences for disobeying God's Son? If you think drifting away from God's servants is bad. If you think taking for granted God's law is bad. Then how shall we escape judgment if we drift away from God's son? Someone as great as Jesus. Verses 1 through 4 are a well-intentioned warning for us as believers. As one scholar puts it, this warning is not designed to rob us of hope, but to steer us away from danger. The danger, of course, is drifting away from the message that we've heard and the Jesus who it's about. That phrase, drifting away, comes from the world of sailing. Out on the water, especially in the ancient world where there was no GPS, you had better make sure that you were staying on course. Because if you get lazy, arrogant, or distracted, if you fall asleep at the wheel, then you will quickly find yourself drifting away from where you're supposed to be. And what's scary to think about is that it doesn't take a massive storm to get you lost on the water. If you're just a few degrees off for a long enough time, you can miss your destination entirely. So what does the author challenge us to do? Don't drift away. Pay close attention. Stay the course. Remember Christ. Believe in him. Obey him. Worship him. Fix your eyes on him when the massive storms of life threaten to spin you around, turn you upside down, or sink you. Because those moments are when you might be tempted to lose hope. But on top of that, fix your eyes on him when the sailing is smooth. When there's not a cloud in the sky. Because those are the moments when you may be tempted to get arrogant, lazy, or distracted. Paying close attention is the only proper response to someone better than the prophets. Someone better than the angels. It's the only proper response to someone who is both fully God and fully man. It's the only proper response to someone who tasted death for you, calls you his sibling, 
in spite of all your sin and freed you from slavery by his life, death and resurrection. That's how you respond to somebody as great as Jesus. How else could you respond to someone as great as Jesus? So one final time, it's Jesus's divinity and humanity that makes him so much better than anything and everything else. Divinity is emphasized in chapter one. Humanity is emphasized in chapter two. And we need both of them to understand just how good and great our Lord is. He's better than anything and everything we can imagine. And through his life and death, he has made purification for our sins in a way that only he could. So how do we respond? We pay close attention. We do not drift away. Plant yourself firmly in God's word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would anchor you in the truths of the gospel. Surround yourself with other believers to encourage you, teach you, and hold you accountable when you're getting knocked off course by the storms of life or falling asleep at the wheel because the sailing looks smooth. Just as Jesus is greater than we can fathom, the rewards of faithfulness to him are more valuable than we can grasp. And just as Jesus is greater than we can understand, the judgment for neglecting him is more than we can bear. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these soaring verses telling us how great you are. You're better than the prophets. You're better than the angels. You're uncreated. You are the king who made purification for our sins in a way that only you could. These verses can just take our breath away if we really, really give them the attention they deserve. But Lord, also thank you for the verses of warning right smack in the middle of chapters one and two. Lord, help us respond rightly to your goodness and your greatness. Help us pay close attention to who you are. Lord, help us not drift away, whether the big waves of suffering and hardship threaten us or whether the small waves of laziness or arrogance or distraction can slowly but surely nudge us off course. Lord, help us pay close attention to you. And one way we can pay closer attention to you is by being reminded of how great you are. Because when we see how great you are in your humanity and in your divinity, we want to pay close attention to you. Everything else starts to just pale in comparison. So, Lord, help us know how great you are and respond rightly to your greatness with faith, trust, obedience, worship, joy. Help us pay close attention. Lord, by your grace, help us not drift away. We love you, we glorify you, we honor you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Before the throne
have a strong and perfect key, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while it from that song that really kind of captures how amazing Jesus's incarnation is, his humanity and his divinity. And it's that line that Jesus is the great unchangeable I am. Because people would hear that and think, well, if he's the great unchangeable I am, how in the world can he die on the cross? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. God's not supposed to die. God can't die. And so the early church, the early Christians went back and forth trying to figure out, well, how is this guy fully God and fully man? Is it 50-50, 50 50-149, 80-20? We talked about that a few weeks ago in that sermon series about honest mistakes and malicious heresies. But the early Christians rightly determined from Scripture that Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man. And if you can't wrap your mind around that, that's okay. Because that's what scripture teaches. And that is what makes Jesus so great. That this great, unchangeable I am can also somehow die on the cross for our sins. So if you have any questions about what it means to trust in Jesus, the fully God, fully man, Savior of the world, 
then by all means, talk to an elder, talk to a pastor, someone with a name tag. We'd love to have that conversation with you about becoming a follower of Christ. And if you're already a follower of Christ and you would like prayer or encouragement, by all means, hunt one of us down for that as well. But with that, I will close our service in prayer, and we hope you'll be back next week as we press on in the book of Hebrews. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't hear a sermon like this and just view it as theological review to make sure we're saying all the right things and taking all the right stances, but that we would read chapters like Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 and the rest of the book, for that matter, and be continually, repeatedly brought into awe and wonder as we consider who you are and what you've done for us, all your greatness and all your goodness. And be with us in the week ahead. No matter what comes our way, remind us that you tasted death on our behalf, that you rose from the grave, that you call us your children. To a degree, you even call us your siblings. And Lord, remind us that you can sympathize with our weaknesses, that we don't have to fear death because you already overcame death. Lord, give us that hope, that joy, that confidence, that trust, that faith, and help us stay on course in the week ahead in a world filled with all kinds of winds and waves that threaten to knock us off track. Lord, help us pay close attention, stay on course. We love you. We glorify you. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.